He was definitely like the ultimate outsider who became the ultimate insider. And so because of that, he's become this kind of avatar, really, for a new school of creative who didn't think they felt included or could be a part of the larger creative universe. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Inc., a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. The cultural sphere rarely sees a creative dynamo on the level of Virgil Abloh, or one harder to quantify. A trained architect who was born to Ghanaian immigrants and grew up in Chicago, he was best known as the visionary men's artistic director of Louis Vuitton, the first person of color to hold that position, and a role that he held when he died at 41 from a rare cancer. But his protean career began blazing long before that. A key early milestone? In 2009, Abloh interned at Fendi alongside rapper and fashion designer Kanye West, a relationship that led to Abloh later serving as the creative director for West's agency Donda. Later on, he founded the short-lived yet highly influential streetwear label Pyrex Vision in 2012, selling garments by other brands that he screen-printed with his own label's name and elevated to eye-watering prices, a Duchampian gesture that combined appropriation, impeccable branding, and the kind of gleeful outsider-turned-insider humor that marked Abloh's career. In 2019, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago mounted the first museum exhibition dedicated to Abloh's work in Figures of Speech, a sprawling show that brought in twice the museum's normal attendance and helped cement Abloh's legacy in the realm of fine art. Now on view in Brooklyn, the show explores Abloh's luxury brand activations, perspectives on design and architecture, and collaborations with artists including Takashi Murakami, Jenny Holzer, and the architect Rem Koolhaas. This week, Artnet News' brand editor William Van Meter spoke about the designer's work and legacy with Gian Delian, the men's fashion and editorial director of Nordstrom, who collaborated with Ablo on one of his final projects, a capsule collection called New Concepts 18, Virgil Ablo Securities, which drops this week. Please enjoy their conversation. Hi, Gian. Thanks so much for being on The Art Angle. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Jumping into it for our listeners, can you kind of give us a background on Virgil Abloh? I think a lot of people know him as a designer and they think it just kind of begins and ends with him being at Louis Vuitton and they don't know kind of the scope of him as a creator. Yeah, I would characterize Virgil Abloh really as probably one of the first modern ideas of the multidisciplinary creative, like the multi-hyphenate. That wasn't really a term until his sort of era. He's a kid from Chicago who went to University of Madison, Wisconsin, became a trained architect. He's a contemporary of people like me who grew up with the internet, like one foot in the real world, one foot in the internet. He contributed to this blog called The Brilliance, along with Benjamin Edgar and Chuck Anderson, the two other Chicago creatives, where he read about everything from German kitchen knives to ironically, like how the bootleg Gucci t-shirts were better than any sort of expensive Gucci t-shirt that they were making at the time to, you know, dining at the polo bar in Chicago. So, you know, he was definitely like the ultimate outsider who became the ultimate insider. And so because of that, he's become this kind of avatar, really, for a new school of creative who didn't think they felt included or could be a part of the larger creative universe, whether it's designing album covers for Kanye West I guess that was Virgil's big break was when he started touring with him, becoming his creative consigliere, 
to, of course, the ascent and rise of his creative endeavors to Louis Vuitton and then establishing Off-White with uh, Nugard's group. You know, one thing I think about his ascent is that everyone kind of thinking of him as coming from like this group and that everyone from the group kind of emerged into stars in their own right and like kind of what this scene was like in the beginning, like of who was of this faction that started. I think there's always been iterations of that. Every sort of era has been typified by the sort of creative crews that existed around the same time from like Malcolm McLaren and, and Vivian Westwood and of course that whole World's End era and London punk. After that would be Sean Stussy and his creative contemporaries, ranging from Hiroshi Fujiwara and Nigo in Japan to Michael Koppelman in London. I think what a lot of people sort of typify as streetwear now really started with that generation, right? The post-Stussy generation of people like James Jebbia, who started as the manager of the Stussy store and the proprietor of Union, along with Marianne Fusco before he started Supreme. And so a lot of it is just like working with people you can trust and the homies that came up with along the way. I don't think it was any different for Virgil Abloh and his contemporaries. Probably the one that he's most associated with is the Ben Trill crew, along with uh, Matthew Williams, Aaron Preston, Ivan Jasper, that whole sort of idea of the traveling DJ squad. And it's interesting that Matthew Williams is now like the head of Givenchy and that like everyone from this crew has really gone on to have like a massive stature within fashion and art and the crossovers therein. It's one of those things where people's eyes are towards where the energy's at. And, you know, for lack of a better way of describing it, they're always great at bringing the vibes. It's like when Kanye West did his first APC collaboration that Virgil was behind the scenes and working on. And even Shane Oliver and Venus X with Ghetto Gothic all the way up to Launching Pit by Air, a lot of those early graphics were actually by Virgil. And he was just about constantly pushing forth creativity in any form. He was always of the mindset of literally just do it, which is why he's almost like Nike's perfect collaborator, because he took the idea of what that meant outside of sport and applied it to creativity as a activity that requires serious exertion. When he became the creative director of Louis Vuitton, what did that mean? It wasn't like the brand was stagnant or anything at the time. He succeeded Kim Jones. What did that mean for him to take over? Kim Jones is an interesting example because he also comes from that same world. People who look at what his past work is, it's like in Kim Jones' graduate collection, he had Nike Terminators walking down the runway. Kim Jones also is from like that same kind of Sean Stussy, Michael Koppelman school of, you know, let's call it streetwear, for lack of a better way of describing it. Michael Koppelman who is responsible for bringing in brands like Stussy, Bape, and Supreme into uh, London, gave Kim Jones his first job. And so that's why when Louis Vuitton and Supreme happened, it was a different sort of close circle. And in some ways, I feel like Virgil is a successor of that school of thought. Basically, what streetwear did for sample culture, in that everything was sort of valid and ripe for reinterpretation, that's one of the codes that he made really from Off-White, from Pyrex, he would always say, you know, we're all children of the box logo. And I think that's evident in his work and what he'll call the 3% approach, like the minimum amount you need to change something to make it something new. Mm -hmm. And also it was quite significant for a black man to take over at LVMH house. Oh, hundred percent. I certainly cried when he took his bow and he hugged Kanye West because as someone who's seen his come up from RCP gallery to you know, his first Colette shirt with medallions on it, to writing one of the first articles on the defunct blog Four Pins, just sort of being incredulous that here's a guy that could put Pyrex 23 on the back of a dead stock rugby flannel and then just charge a 700% markup 
on it because that's what he wanted to value his work at. It's audacious, but at the same time, at the time, it was just like, whoa, this is kind of insane. But that's just sort of how his mind worked was, who are you to tell me what my work is worth? So tell me about, like, how did you relate to him throughout the years? Like, how did he come up on your radar? When I worked at Complex, Virgil was, I guess, one would describe him as Kanye West's creative director. I think in particular, you know, there's a young cater of kids who grew up with streetwear and sneakers who still struggle to figure out what exactly a creative director is and what the daily duties are. But this was at the time when he was doing a lot of work for Kanye West, whether it was exposing him to different types of artists or just figuring out things like how his APC collaboration would come into fruition. And he had a shop in Chicago with Don C called RSVP Gallery. It did this whole aesthetic where it was like high fashion meets sneakers and streetwear in a way that wasn't being done in Chicago at that time, especially at that level. But in many ways, Kanye West was like the creative nucleus for these guys, being from Chicago, wearing their wares and putting on their designs to a hungry audience of kids who wanted to dress like him or at least be inspired by what he was wearing. And I'm unfamiliar with this shop with a name like that RSVP gallery, was there more of kind of like an art extension part of it? Was it kind of more than a store? Oh, 100%. I mean, keep in mind, this is when putting Takashi Murakami on an album cover was revolutionary. That's what Kanye West was doing at the time for like the zeitgeist and just making Elaine Mickley, Mason Margiela household names. And these were sort of on the periphery of pop culture. And he was pushing them in the forefront and really just elevating the taste level of everyone who was engaged in the work. So when he was a creative director, were you really aware of him? Like, was he not kind of like a man behind the curtain for Kanye? Like, were people aware that he was there helping out? That's why the Wizard of Oz reference as like the man behind the curtain for his first show. He's both Dorothy and the Wizard in that moment when he debuted his show. He's the Midwestern kid who never thought he could be in the position he was in. But he's also one of the ultimate myth makers and image makers who understood the power of being more than just the kid from the Midwest, but could be this big entity that was a force unto himself. And for The Wizard of Oz, you're referring to his debut for Louis Vuitton? Yes, correct. So Virgil studied architecture, and a lot of his collections would touch upon art. In the exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum, there's off-white pieces whose collections name-check Giorgio de Chirico and the Argentine artist Lucio Fontana, and he just had many other art collaborations. I like how Virgil Abloh has recontextualized Caravaggio in many ways. I think the running joke was that if you literally Googled religious painting, it's a Pieta from Caravaggio. It's like one of the first results. And I think playing with those notions of what is art, who can access it, how you can reappropriate it, and what it means is one of the codes that he frequently touches on. I think it's almost using art in the same context as flipping you know, the Amoco logo into a hat. He was sued by the United Nations Council. That's in the exhibit. It's one of my favorite pieces, a cease and desist from the UN for taking their logo and turning it into his um, DJ logo for when he would DJ under flat white. One of his things was just like everything sort of equal, not necessarily in like the Takashi Murakami super flat kind of way, but it's just like, look, let me just remix the world the same way Stussy remixed two S's and made it like a, his own Chanel homage. What were his codes? Boil it down to someone who, you know, is unfamiliar with his work. I mean, I think, you know, he took sample culture from streetwear and DJing and then turned that into how he approached 
his graphic and visual universe. That's what Virgil Abloh would have characterized as his 3% approach. And there's also this idea of post-rationalization of how he talks about his work. And then, of course, like a healthy degree of irony with the use of the quotes, Helvetica. He's built a super rich visual language that people can see. Can we talk about his usage of language and punctuation? You know, he's famously uses like air quotes and stuff. And I kind of see this as being kind of a setup. It's like, it's questioning something like by putting quotes around it by saying like, is this art? But it's also about like the flux of language and how there's no rules in it. It's not math, you know, language that no one really abides by the rules with punctuation. You know, in newspapers, everyone just does possessive their own way or their own style and that he's kind of really, you know, taking this. Do you have like thoughts on why this is ingrained in all of his work? When Off-White did their last show, Spaceship Earth, it was like one of the models walked out with a black flag that said, question everything, in quotes. And that's sort of just been his MO. He always liked to say that images are the way he writes. He wished that he was a better writer, so he found other ways of communicating his message outside of words, or he would treat words like images and sort of sample them in the same way that you would pitch shift a song. You've been to a lot of off-white and Louis Vuitton shows. Mr. Abloh, he really elevated runway shows to make it like an art installation slash performance. He had Futura 2000 doing live painting during the show. Like, are there other runway presentations that really struck you as incorporating these other art aspects? I mean, one of the best things that Virgil ever said to me was how he thought the greatest invention in humankind was the mixer. And it allows you to process two different tracks, find the similarities, or sometimes focus on one or focus on the other. And I firmly believe that was a representation of his brain. His brain was a mixer. I would be talking with him on like Clubhouse and WhatsApping him at the same time. And he would be telling me that he was at a dinner with one headphone in his ear, having like three conversations at once. And I think his ability to multitask has just been shown in his work, and that's just a physical manifestation of when he wants Futura to do an off-white collaboration or spray paint his mise-en-scene of the Lower East Side at a Vuitton show. So I think a lot of people know Virgil Abloh, Off-White, and Louis Vuitton, but what are the other creative outlets and entities that he had and worked with? You know, there's almost an entire Abloh-verse, if you will, unto itself. I think one thing that Virgil was really good at was creating different structures, especially within corporations. Like, within himself, there was Canary Yellow, which was the arm for the art practice of what he did. And there was also Alaska, Alaska, which is a London-based creative agency that we work with a lot for Concept 18. And that's done by Francisco Gaspar and Tawanda Chueche, who are two extremely talented creatives in their own right. And then even within Nike, he was able to set up something called Architecture with Chloe Mafu Sultan, which is an in-house creative agency within the Armour Nike. And that's how he was able to just sort of brute force his way through some of the corporate creative meetings that can happen when you're doing things at that level. People would think getting a Converse and a Jordan in one collab would be easier said than done. And it's actually like a lot of moving parts to make that happen. And then even with things like, let's say, the Gymnastics Art Institute, I can't speak specifically to that, but I believe that is part of his practice that applies 
to how his exhibitions are displayed and the whole art arm of working with institutes like the MCA, the Brooklyn Museum, et cetera. But that's why it's important that for us in doing Concept 18, we wanted to do it under Virgil Abloh Securities, which was recently announced that it'll be headed by Shannon Abloh, his widow. And that'll be responsible for just sort of overseeing how his codes and his work continue to influence the rest of his projects. So Figures of Speech, the Virgil Abloh exhibit, it began at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and it opened while Mr. Abloh was still alive, and he had input into it. Do you think that during the planning, there was an element of this kind of being his swan song of knowing that the end was near and that this was kind of his way of saying goodbye? In the conversations that I've had with Antoine Sargent, who was the curator for this, as well as the Brooklyn Museum, when they did a recent panel with Tremaine Amory, Tawan de Chouiche, and Antoine Sargent, it's just indicative of Virgil's always just forward-looking work. He was always 100%, no matter what the situation was, and I think that's why his loss is still so surprising, because everything that he was doing was so consistent And always, you know, as you like to say, in the service of his 17-year-old self. And I think the context of him passing before this show, and this being, you know, the penultimate stop of this show, certainly can affect how we view it. But there's nothing in the conversations that I've had with his team or with his contemporaries or his fellow creatives that ever made it seem like he viewed himself as a man running out of time as much as just... He never stopped moving. Can you talk about this 17-year-old self-philosophy that he had? It's something that I like to say, doing what I do as the you know, men's fashion editorial director at Nordstrom, which is like, if I were to run into the 12-year-old me tomorrow, and he was going to ask, well, what are you doing now? What are you up to? Would he be psyched or would he just be bummed? <laughs> I think there's an element of that into it, where you want to have that childlike curiosity, You don't want to get too jaded by the world where you're just like, well, nothing I do is going to matter. And you just still want to be excited about getting up every day. And I think that's part of it is because he also knew that the 17-year-old version of himself is still alive today in kids who want to do what he does. All he's saying is never lose that enthusiasm, right? It's like Steve Jobs, right? Stay hungry. There's an amazing video. It's an old YouTube video. It's Virgil giving a tour of Bucktown in Chicago, him just walking through what the shops were like then. And he sounds just like he did later in life. Still excited about the same exact things. Still excited about graffiti. Still excited about skating. And still excited about Nike sneakers. And so I think that's a testament of how he's just been able to, you know, continually do things that would matter to the 17-year-old version of himself. Is that he hasn't really changed. He's evolved and progressed until the end of his life he knew what his foundation was. I think that fashion is not the focus of the exhibition. And I think that'll surprise people that there are clothes there, but you forget that he had his hand in so many other things. And there's art made for art, but there's also clothing made as art. There's all of these overlaps. And one piece that really struck me that just walking by that I thought he wielded not just words with like quotation marks and punctuation, but also numbers. And so it was just these scattered numbers on yellow. And then actually reading up, it's actually that the numbers are police evidence markers. And what I thought was just a very simple clothing reference was actually this like powerful artistic statement of anti-gun violence. Throughout the show, there are some very heavy 
meaning within the items, not just in the art, but within the closing themselves, that he really was trying to say something with everything he did. Yeah, I think one of the recurring motifs in a figure to speech is the idea of the sunroof of the Trojan horse, which you know is emblazoned on a lot of the uh, souvenir merchandise from this collection, but it's something that Tremaine Amory of Denim Tears and the creative director at Supreme now also talks about, which is just what Virgil was doing was just opening the sunroof of the Trojan horse. We're barely there where we realize that there's a whole army inside. The sunroof's been open. It's time for everyone else to get in. He brought everybody else in. And he's done that particularly for black creatives who have felt you know, not included in the conversation or have felt that they could achieve the same trajectory. And to your point, I think the way that he thought about art and the way he thought about design and creativity in that everything was valid, I think he really expanded the notion of what practice is and the term practice to a whole new generation of creatives. Where like practice wasn't so much about what you did, but how you lived and how that affected everything that you touched. One of the other images that really struck me in the show is one of the first Louis Vuitton images, the Inez and Venude shot of a small child just swimming in a Wizard of Oz sweater that's Mm -hmm. kind of surrounded by colored origami. And that this image was used as an advertisement or as like a brand statement, but there's so much more to it than that. And that it really resonates in the show. Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to it. You know, I mean, boyhood and that sort of, again, that childlike curiosity has always been a often cited inspiration for him. I certainly couldn't help but think of James LeBond, a photographer for Stussy, who had shot some early Stussy ads of oversized Stussy shirts on kids in Africa, because I think his parents were missionaries. And so, like, you have like, this imagery of Stussy clothing from, like, the 80s on, you know, these kids from Africa just, like, wearing the shirts in an oversized manner. That speaks to the meta nature of what Virgil was able to do. He was able to get Inez and Venude to channel something that speaks to his inspiration and the idea of keeping boyhood as like the big sort of idea behind his first collection and how we sort of matriculate as creators and also just in the fashion world. And he's able to tie it back to someone who grew up with Stussy and you can connect those dots. He was one of the few people that could do that in a way that made both seem valid. He used statuary so much in his work and that some of these statues are in the exhibit. And before this, they were used as brand activations around the city for Nike's recent exhibit. That's something he's been doing since he started at Vuitton. So from his first collection, once it hit stores, there were these multicolored statues of the models from the show in Vuitton stores. I remember I was talking with the model and actor and just, again, multidisciplinary creative Evan Mock, who had walked in the show and was cast for one of those statues. And I mean, it's got to feel great if you're a young model to see yourself immortalized in that fashion. And I think it also speaks to what he was doing when a lot of the people who were chosen to be sculptures quite literally aren't used to seeing themselves immortalized in that fashion too. Again, there's like so many layers to something as simple as just, let's make statues to represent the collection in our stores. It makes the gigantic version of Virgil that stands at like the Miami men's store all the more profound. And, you know, speaking of that, you know, we just finished the Nike thing that was in Greenpoint and there's such different exhibitions when that was really just like a brand installation and it's like shoes on the wall. There's also that aspect in this that I found. I think that just like looking at the pile of Nikes on the table, there's a bit of emptiness to that, to me, that you're just looking at product. 
But then when you look at the greater show as a whole, it's very pop art that it is these everyday objects that have become art and this back and forth between them. And even like with the things that he would make, like a necklace made out of solid gold paper clips and the usage of leaving like a theft tag on Nikes, that there's all this taking of the everyday and elevating it, which is really kind of like the definition I see of streetwear is like, you know, this elevation of something. I mean, I think seeing the sneakers on a table, especially the table that Virgil designed, right? That's the whole one motif of the exhibit is that a lot of it is on tables that Virgil made. And so it felt appropriate to have his designs on his designs. And again, that meta layer of the work. To me, it speaks to a generation of people who already grew up thinking sneakers were works of art, that the canon could include Tinker Hatfield and Bruce Kilgore and Peter Moore, who had made the Jordan 1, the Air Force 1, and a myriad of other Nike shoes. And when you think about the fact that someone like Tinker Hatfield is also a trained architect, and he also can make the Jordan 4, which itself could be seen as some sort of architectural marvel too. Not to push the whole sneakerhead agenda, but I think it does speak to, you know, again, that sort of flattening and level playing field that Virgil saw like as canon. It's interesting that this kind of appropriation of these things, and I think it's fascinating how he took shipping materials and like those kinds of things and made like the famous off-white belt that Mm -hmm. he really kind of saw like this everyday detritus of modern life and looked at it in a different way and celebrated it. I think one of Virgil's things is that he's equally impressed with kids who can't afford one of his fashion pieces and go make their own version of it. And that's why he does use materials you could get at a Home Depot. That's why he's so fond of the ready-made as an idea and just as you know, a concept. It's the idea of, I can do it, you can do it too. And I think that's something that really appeals to this newer DIY kind of generation of, I'm going to make my own. He wants you to make your own. The exhibition, there's a lot of products within. You know, he was a product designer, he was a fashion designer. You're seeing Nikes, you're seeing Off-White, you're seeing Louis Vuitton. There is a lot of art, but you're seeing a lot of brands. And it seems that the museum kind of bleeds into the gift shop, which is very popular these days is gift shop as museum. And so now it's further blurred. And so the gift shop has a name called Church and State. And it's interesting because it's kind of set up as a gallery gift shop. Like you can't just pick up the item and take it to the register that you kind of can't touch anything, but you can tell the person what you want and buy it. Can you talk to me a bit about this gift shop experience? A lot of what Virgil has done is very much in the vibe of like the call is coming from inside the house. And so I think the way that he's called the gift shop church and state, you're not quite sure if you've entered or exited through the gift shop, really, when you go to the exhibit, that's just how he did things. Again, it goes with his notion of questioning the status quo and is there a way to do things differently? And the fact that he wasn't really ever trying to play by any rules except his own. Let's kind of go further that one of the corporate sponsors of the show is Nordstrom, where you work and that you have a new collection coming out that's done in conjunction with Virgil Abloh. Yeah, so we have our latest edition of our new concepts program, which is a series where we explore sort of the latest and greatest in menswear and beyond. It's our 18th iteration, and it's done with Virgil Abloh Securities. In true Virgil fashion, it started with a WhatsApp, like maybe like a couple of months after I had started, where I had been working with Sam Lobin, who's our SVP of designer and new concepts, on just 
storytelling around how these shops come to life. And it led to a Zoom call. You know, again, it's like, this is how Virgil was. It's like Virgil dialed in within 30 seconds of this call. He had already Photoshopped retail, in quotes, on the flagship windows of our New York store. He was talking about OMA, another one of his frequent reference points, and retail is really one of the last social, physical activities. We were talking about the OMA study in retail, which is like a book that talks about everything from escalators and how mall culture has evolved and how we wanted to subvert that. So Concept 18, Virgil Lab Plus Securities, contains a capsule collection with Off-White, as well as Canary Yellow and Church and State. So we'll actually have some of the Brooklyn Museum merch available in select shops. So it's sort of our way of being able to bring a bit of the exhibit to some of the stores where kids might not necessarily be able to make it to Brooklyn. Well, thank you so much for coming by the pod, GN, and talking about all things Virgil Abloh. Thanks so much, Bill. It's my pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.